We'll be in Judges chapter 20. Judges chapter 20, so please turn in your Bibles there. The appendix of the book of Judges is designed to show the widespread problem of corruption both spiritually and morally. Spiritually, we saw the story of Micah and this Levite that he hired to be in his home, uh, this man Jonathan, who was the grandson of grandson of Moses. And we see that, that uh, he sets up his own, Micah sets up his own shrine right there, even though he's got the house of God not too far from his house. And morally, we see the corruption, the Sodom and Gomorrah type lifestyle that, that's going on in one of the tribes of Israel, Benjamin. And uh, so this story continues. And as I've mentioned before, this does not chronologically follow the story of Samson. And there are a few more proofs that we have of that fact in uh, this chapter. In fact, in verse 11, it suggests that this is early in the time period because Israel was united together and there wouldn't be any unity for most of the period of the judges. There was unity towards the beginning of that period. Remember, Joshua had brought them into the land. And there was unity after that period when David brought everyone together under one nation, but but throughout most of the period they were divided because of all this, this oppression that's going on all over the nation. The second reason we know that this happened before the time of Samson and probably towards the beginning of the, uh, the period of the Judges is because we are introduced to a man by the name of Phinehas. Uh, Phinehas, in verse 28, is the same priest who was serving during the time of Joshua. And so it would serve to reason that that this this would happen towards the beginning of the period of the judges. And the point of all this is that that the people of Israel as a nation were corrupt throughout this time period. As a whole, in general, maybe be a better way to put it, they were corrupt. Now, that doesn't mean they all were. Remember, we, we looked at uh, David's great-grandparents, Ruth and Boaz. We mentioned those in a previous uh, time. and And certainly some others like Gideon and, and Ehud and others who were faithful to God and seeking to do what was right. Um, but, but, but much of the period of the judges was marked by spiritual and moral corruption. And these last two stories, these stories of the appendix, really serve as an illustration of the mindset of the people of Israel during this time, which will lead us to a culminating point that we'll take some time to consider next week and that is that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They did as they saw fit. And their ultimate need was a king. The, the, the remedy for this was, was a king, a God-appointed leader. Let me read the first 17 verses of this chapter for us tonight, beginning with verse 1. Chapter 20, verse 1. This is the Word of God. Then all the sons of Israel from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead, came out. And the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. The chiefs of all the people, even of all the tribes of Israel, took their stand in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 foot soldiers who drew the sword. Now the sons of Benjamin had heard that the sons of Israel had gone up to Mizpah. And the sons of Israel said, Tell us, how did, the wickedness, how did this wickedness take place? So the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, I came with my concubine to spend the night at Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. 
But the men of Gibeah rose up against me and surrounded the house at night because of me, and they intended to kill me. Instead, they ravished my concubine so that, they, so that she died. And I took hold of my concubine and cut her in pieces and sent her throughout the land of Israel's inheritance, for they have committed a lewd and disgraceful act in Israel. Behold, all you sons of Israel, give your advice and counsel here. Then all the people arose as one man, saying, Not one of us will go to his tent, nor will any of us return to his house. But now this is the thing which we will do to Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot. And we will take ten men out of a hundred throughout the tribes of Israel, and a hundred out of a thousand, and a thousand out of ten thousand, to supply food for the people. That when they come to Gibeah of Benjamin, they may punish them for all the disgraceful acts that they have committed in Israel. Thus all the men of Israel were gathered against the city, united as one man. Then the tribes of Israel sent men through the entire tribe of Benjamin, saying, What is this wickedness that has taken place among you? Now then, deliver up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and remove this wickedness from Israel. But the sons of Benjamin would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the sons of Israel. The sons of Benjamin gathered from the cities of Gibeah to go out to battle against the sons of Israel. From the cities on that day, the sons of Benjamin were numbered 26,000 men who drew the sword, besides the inhabitants of Gibeah who were numbered 700 choice men. Out of all these people, 700 choice men were left-handed. Each one could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. Then the men of Israel besides Benjamin were numbered 400,000 men who draw the sword. All these were men of war. The consequences of widespread corruption. This corruption, by the way, is not uh, confined to this some small family or even the priesthood or one small tribe. It seems to be spread to the whole nation of Israel. And so the consequences of widespread corruption is anarchy and war. In verses 1-11, through the assembly gathers. Israel responds to this package that they had received as we saw last week, this dismembered concubine. They each receive one part of it. And after receiving this dismembered body part, the tribes of Israel were furious and determined to make this thing right. And so, verse 1, it says, from Dan to Beersheba, think of from the north all the way to the south. The land of Israel came together. 400,000 foot soldiers, we're told, in these 11 tribes come and they gather at the end of verse 1 in a place called Mizpah. Mizpah is on on the border of Ephraim and Benjamin. And it was just north of Gibeah. It was, a, it was their meeting point where they would discuss what they should do. And so as this is going on, the nation of Israel is gathering together in Mizpah. Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, the really the opponents here, they find out that this meeting is going on. And so they start to prepare themselves. Well, in this meeting, the Levite, this Levite man, the one whose concubine was killed, explains what happens. In verses 4 through 7. But he changes a few things. I'm not sure if you noticed that as we read through. But he, he said that they were, notice verse 5, that they were trying to kill him. But the men of Gibeah rose up against me and surrounded the house at night because of me, and they intended to kill me. That's not exactly true. Their intention didn't seem to be that they were trying to kill him, but rather trying to have immoral relations with him and. Perhaps the natural consequence of that, like it was with the woman, would be that he would die. But 
But they, they didn't seem to have any intention of killing him. And the other thing that seems to be different is that he conveni- conveniently leaves out the fact that he did nothing to protect this woman. He conveniently leaves out the fact that, that he effectively offered her up for the, to these ravenous men. And so, this whole nation of Israel, the eleven tribes that are listening to the story are furious. And yet, they only have, essentially, one side of the story. They haven't heard everything that's going on. Now, we don't want to dismiss or excuse anything that the, Gibeah, the people of Gibeah had done. It's not my point here. But the point is, is that this Levite was not completely innocent in this case. And yet, he's using this story to try to, to, to well up some, some motivation for the people of Israel to go against Benjamin. This conflict is very similar to the conflict in Joshua 22. In Joshua 22, the two and a half tribes that are east of the Jordan River set up a memorial uh, altar on, on the east of the Jordan River. Now, the nine and a half tribes on the west of the Jordan River find out about this. And they think that they're setting up a separate altar, a separate place where God would be worshipped. And they recognize that that's actually an affront, an offense to God. And so they go over to these two and a half tribes and say, what are you doing? In fact, Phinehas, Phinehas was the, the, uh, the priest who was in charge of kind of being the arbitrator between these two groups of people. And uh, before they, they, they bring, the nine and a half tribes bring all these men over in order, that, in order to attack if the circumstances turned out to be what they expected, which was they were making a place of worship. What they found out in talking to these men, the two and a half tribes over here who had set up this altar, was that it wasn't a place of worship, but rather a memorial stone. It was, a, it was an opportunity for them to remember what God had done so that they wouldn't forget God. They didn't want their two and a half tribes to be separated from these nine and a half tribes and then forget God. And so they set up a memorial stone. And when, when that was explained to Joshua and to the nine and a half tribes, they, their anger subsided and they, they turned away. Here, the eleven tribes of Israel attack and, and they're going to go on the attack. We'll see this here in just a minute. They're going to go on the attack on Benjamin without finding out what kind of culpability the Levite has in this whole matter. That he actually gave up his, his lesser wife in order for, for her to be... Um, raped all night long and then eventually killed. Remember what he was doing while this all took place. He was sleeping. He was sound asleep. When he arose the next morning, the text says, he got up to go and she was laying at the threshold of the door with her hands there. So while he's sleeping, she's being raped and murdered. Verses 8-11, through we see the unity of Israel against Benjamin. Notice verse 8. What they say, then all the people arose, this is the eleven tribes, as one man, saying, Not one of us will go to his tent, nor will any of us return to his house. Verse 11, Thus all the men of Israel were gathered against the city, united as one man. Israel comes together in a great semblance of unity. They form a national assembly, not for the worship of God, not to remember God's miracles and God's mercies, they do so in order to, to revenge or, or take vengeance out on a dead woman. 
Now, please understand that they should have been upset over her death. But there doesn't seem to be very much desire to determine what was true, whether or not the Levite was being honest about what had happened. There's no mention of hearing what Benjamin had to say about this. They seem to be more intent on retribution and uh, retaliation rather than on real justice. So in verse 9, they cast lots to see who would fight and they come up with, uh, they come up with out of the 400,000, uh, 360,000 of them would be the fighters. The rest of them, that's why you have all these numbers listed in verse 10, that one out of 100, or 10 out of 100, 100 out of 1,000, and 1,000 out of 10,000. Those would be the ones, the 10% would be the ones who would supply the, the, uh, the rations that were necessary for the front lines, the people who were, were fighting. So for every 10 person, people that were fighting, there was one person, every 9 people that were fighting, there was one person who would supply, uh, supply them with what they needed in order to fight and to survive. And so they come up with 400,000 men. 360,000 apparently are, are the, fight, the ones who are fighting. In verses 12 through 18, they, they engage with Benjamin. In verses 12 and 13, Benjamin fails to repent. Here's an opportunity for Benjamin to say, what these people of Gibeah did was wrong. It was completely against God and it should not be allowed. And... And these men in our own tribe need to be they, they need to, to be brought to justice. And they could have taken these men, these what are called these worthless fellows, they could have brought them before the, the eleven tribes of Israel and say, We're on your side. We agree that they need to be punished for what they have done. But instead, they say, No, we're not going to give them up. This is a matter of uh, of uh, personal uh, credence. We, we can't allow people to see us in this light, our people, as some kind of ravenous animals. They didn't want to see these men destroyed. They didn't want to see these men brought to justice, and so they refused. We're not going to bring these men forward. Instead, we're going to prepare for battle. So in verses 14 to 18, Benjamin prepares for battle and Israel prepares for, for battle. Benjamin prepares with all of the capable men that they had. Verse 15 tells us that 26,000 men came together. In addition to that, they had 700 exceptional left-handers who had an ability to sling a stone with pinpoint precision. These were not little pebbles that would have been slung. The stones were likely about a pound each and were about the size of a baseball, although they were probably not spherical in shape, probably more oblong and kind of smooth stones. And uh, these men could sling these stones at speeds between 90 and 100 miles per hour. So pinpoint accuracy, unmatched speed, and excessive force made these weapons like our modern-day guns. That is, there's no defense for them. There was no hiding once someone let go of the stone from their sling, right? It wasn't like the person could think, you know, I think... I see a stone coming from that sling. I'm going to duck and move out of the way, right? It would be, I see, and he's dead. With the great force that comes from a one-pound object being slung at 90 to 100 miles per hour. So while Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, was vastly outnumbered, they had better weaponry and better skilled fighters. 
And uh, we'll see also that Benjamin was on their home playing court, their home playing field, so to speak. They had the advantage in that way as well. Well, so they prepare for battle. They have their 26,000 come together. And Israel prepares for battle in verses 17 and 18. And they have their 400,000 men. Uh, remember, 360,000 will be fighting. The other 40 will be supplying what is necessary for the battle. Before they go out, the people of Israel inquire of God, likely using the Urim and the Thummim, which were the two stones that were held in the, the, the breast plate of the priest. And this seems to be a legitimate inquiry of God that they were not jumping to conclusions. Uh, they were not uh, jumping the gun on what they should do. Instead, they were seeking God and seeking what He wanted uh, for them. Look at verse 18. Now the sons of Israel arose, went up to Bethel, and inquired of God and said, Who shall go up first for us to battle against the sons of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. Now, Likely, again, this is happening through the Urim and the Thummim. God's probably not speaking in these exact words. He's, they're probably saying, which one of our tribes should go up first? Should it be, and then they say Reuben, and the Urim and Thummim would say no. And then, should it be Simeon? Should it be Levi? And go through all the tribes, eventually it gets to Judah and, and the Urim and the Thummim, which was probably one dark stone and one light stone that would basically explain the will of God to them before they had the written Scriptures. For us, we have the Scriptures. We know what God thinks. We know what God uh, says about certain things. We have God's will, so to speak, in written form. For them, they would have to have the casting of lots like they did with who was going to be going to the battle and who would be supplying um, the, the, what they needed for the battle. They had casting of lots. They had the Urim and the Thummim. And then obviously they had direct voice of God either through the priest or, or to the people directly. Apparently, this is the Urim and the Thummim. And uh, so they head to Bethel, which is a few miles northeast of Mizpah, where they had gathered. And this is where the house of God is. So Mizpah, near, near where they're going to be fighting, but, but they actually head a little bit north, northeast in order to get to Bethel. Now, remember, before, the house of God was in what city? Remember what city the house of God was? It was in Shiloh, right? We saw that with Micah. Even though he's, he's setting up a shrine and his, hiring his own personal freelance priest, he's got the house of God right there in the, the region of Ephraim in the city of Shiloh. But by this time, apparently, this is a little bit later, the house of God moves from Shiloh to Bethel. Now, it's going to move back to Shiloh because in 1 Samuel chapter 1, we find that it's back there again. But, but right now, during this time period in which this is written, it is at Bethel. Notice God's response to them at the end of verse 18. Judah shall go up first. So in other words, these are the ones who will be at the front, on the front lines of, of the fighting. And so, in verses 19 through 48, we have the civil war that ensues. And we have three battles that take place in this civil war. The first battle is recorded for us in verses 19 to 23. And uh, let's, let's read those so we can see what's going on there. So the sons of Israel arose in the morning and camped against Gibeah. The men of Israel went out to battle against Benjamin, and the men of Israel arrayed for battle against them at Gibeah. Then the sons of Benjamin came out of Gibeah and felled to the ground on that day 22,000 men of Israel. 
But the people, the men of Israel, encouraged themselves and arrayed for battle again in the place where they had arrayed themselves the first day. The sons of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until evening and inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall we again draw near for battle against the sons of my brother Benjamin? And the Lord said, Go up against him. So Israel in Mizpah, then Bethel to talk to God, then down to to uh, the region of Benjamin in the city of Gibeah, right where this disastrous uh, moral corruption took place. And they come to battle against the, the people of Benjamin. And yet, we have this serious blow to the people of Israel. 400,000 versus 26,000. And yet, Gibeah, the people of Benjamin, are able to kill 22,000 men of Israel. What an incredible victory in this first battle by the people of Benjamin. But keep in mind that Benjamin had the advantage. We might think, well, if we just think about it in terms of numbers, the the rest of Israel had the advantage. But Benjamin actually had the advantage because Benjamin was on their own home field in Gibeah. It was a hilly area. and, And they had something else that was to their advantage. What was it? It was these left handed slingshot artists who were pin who had pinpoint precision. And what a great combination for the people of Benjamin to have a hilly uh, locale as well as these seven hundred slingshot marksmen. And so these seven hundred men would perch themselves on these hills apparently, and as Israel tried to to attack at the gate of the city, the slingshot snipers would pick them off one by one. And as a result, they killed 22,000 men and there was no defense against these, these, uh, these men. So Israel was devastated. Verse 22, they regroup at the place where they had originally gathered, which apparently is Mizpah, and, uh, or probably Bethel, because verse 23 says they inquire of the Lord again there. To Israel, it must have looked like God had set them up for failure, right? They had specifically asked, God, should we go up? Who is it that we should send first? And He says, send Judah. And yet they lose 22,000 men. What's amazing about the people of Israel at this time, despite the widespread moral corruption, is that they seek God again. Verse 23, The sons of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until even evening and inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall we again draw near for battle? And He says at the end of the verse, Go up against them. They were resolved to win this battle. They were resolved to 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 seek God and and his and his desires here in this battle. So we have the second battle recorded for us in verses 24 through 28. Then the sons of Israel came against the sons of Benjamin the second day. Benjamin went out against them for Gibeah uh, from Gibeah the second day and fell to the ground again 18,000 men of the sons of Israel, all these who drew the sword. Then all the sons of Israel and all the people went up and came to Bethel and wept And thus they remained there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening. And they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. The sons of Israel inquired of the Lord, for the Ark of the Covenant of God was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, Aaron's son, stood before it to minister in those days, saying, Shall I yet again go out to battle against the sons of my brother Benjamin, or shall I cease? And the Lord said, Go up, for tomorrow I will deliver them into your hand. So Israel loses this second battle as well. 
First time they lose 22,000, this time they lose 18,000. Now they've lost 40,000 of their 400,000 fighting men. And so they are, again, devastated, surprised, amazed that God had told them to go up. Should we do this or not? He said, do it. Go up and lose another 5% of their troops. And so they go and they fast back at Bethel, fast till evening, offer sacrifices to God, and say, should we do this again or are we, are we missing something here? And God says, no, go back one more time. You're going, I'm going to deliver them into your hands tomorrow. Phinehas, again, was this, uh, this priest, the grandson of Aaron, and he provides for us a little bit of a timetable for where we are in the, the time of the judges. The third battle is much different. The third battle is recorded for us in verses 29 through 48. The first thing that they do is they draw out Benjamin from Gibeah. Remember, the main advantages that, that Benjamin had was these slingshot marksmen and the, the location in which they were able to sit up there and, and perch themselves. And so Israel thought this time is we need to draw them out. And so they set up an ambush against Benjamin in verses 29 through 35. So Israel set, set men in ambush around Gibeah. The sons of Israel went up against the sons of Benjamin on the third day and arrayed themselves against Gibeah at other, as at other times. And the sons of Benjamin went out against the people and were drawn away from the city. And they began to strike and kill some of the people as at other times on the highways, one which was to go up uh, to Bethel and another to Gibeah and in the field, about 30 men of Israel. And the sons of Benjamin said, They are struck down before us as at the first. But the sons of Israel said, Let us flee that we may draw them away from the city to the highways. Then all the men of Israel arose from their place and arrayed themselves at Baal, Tamar, and the men of Israel in ambush broke out of their place, even out of Meargeba. When ten thousand choice men from all Israel came against Gibeah, the battle became fierce, but Benjamin did not know that disaster was close to them, and the Lord struck Benjamin before Israel, so that the sons of Israel destroyed twenty five thousand one hundred men of Benjamin that day, all who draw the sword. This is a genius plot, really, for, uh, for Israel. Two times they had come up and had lost about 5% of their troops each time. The third time they come up with much fewer troops than they had at the beginning. But they take 10,000 of their troops and they set them in ambush on the other side of the city of Gibeah. And so the majority of the, the tribes of Israel come to the gate at Gibeah again. And immediately, what happens? The slingshot snipers take out 30 of their men. So what does Israel do? They say, oh no, we are, be we are being defeated. Let us flee to the, to the valley. And so they start to run as if uh, they're afraid when really, just as before, when really what they're trying to do is draw Benjamin out to follow them. Benjamin does this. They follow them out. And as they give chase, these 10,000 men who are waiting take over the city. And, and, uh, and, and obviously, once you, have, uh, once you have 350,000 men versus, versus 26,000 men out on, a, on an even playing field, who has the advantage at that point, right? There's no more home field advantage. It's now the people of Israel who have the advantage and they take out 25,000 of these... Uh, 26,000 
of these men. 25,100 according to verse 35. And notice to whom the author gives credit in verse 35. And the Lord struck Benjamin before Israel. God was the one who told them to go up the first time. God was the one who told them to go up the second time. God was the one who told them to go up the third time. And He promised them victory. And the author recognizes that it was God who gave the victory. There's a further explanation of the ambush. And we're not going to to read those verses. I'd encourage you to read those yourself if you haven't already. But verses 36 through 43, they basically set up the ambush. And then as they're out in battle, there's a cloud of smoke that comes up from their city they realize that they're in trouble. Now behind them, they have their own city that's now up in smoke. And in front of them, they have 350, 360,000 troops. And so they're in big trouble. They have nowhere to turn. And so verses 41 through 43 talk of their defeat. The men of Israel turned, verse 41, and the men of Benjamin were terrified for they saw that disaster was close to them. Therefore they turned their backs before the men of Israel toward the direction of the wilderness. But the battle overtook them while those who came out of the cities destroyed them in the midst of them. They surrounded Benjamin, pursued them without rest, and trod them down opposite Gibeah toward the east. And then the the defeat is further described here in these last several verses. Verse 44, Thus 18,000 men of Benjamin fell. All these were valiant warriors. The rest turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Rimon. But they caught 500 of them on the highways and overtook them at Gedom and killed 2,000 of them. So all of Benjamin who fell that day were 25,000 men who draw the sword. All those were valiant warriors. But 600 men turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Rimon, and they remained at the rock of Rimon four months. The men of Israel then turned back against the sons of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword, both the entire city with the cattle and all that they found. They also set fire on all cities which they found. So in total, verse 46 says that 25,000 men were killed who drew the sword. Now, 25,000 is just a round number for what we already saw in verse 35, and that is 25,100 men. So initially, uh, they had, remember, 26,000 men who could draw the sword, Benjamin did, and 700 who could uh, use a slingshot and and strike some, strike a, basically a hare and not miss. So they had 26,700. And in this battle, this final ambush, they lose 25,100, uh, which leaves them with, uh, with, with only 1,600 men left. Now, what we find in the text is that in verse 47, only 600 actually survive. So what that tells us is that there's 1,000 men who die in the first two battles. Uh, and, and so this entire city was defeated. What was most devastating for these 600 remaining men was not that they had to just hide out in the Rock of Rimon, but actually that their whole city was destroyed and everything that was in it. All of their animals. Well, who else would have been left in the city? Right? Their, their wives and children. Anybody who was under the age of, of usually 18 or 21, the men would have, would have been dead. And so Israel killed them all and left them with nothing. They're, they're basically hiding out in a cave on the brink of extinction. Because what are 600 men going to do in order to per- perpetuate a family? Right? They, they can't do it. And, and uh, so that's where next week's story will come into play. It's only a matter of time before the tribe of Benjamin is, ex- is completely wiped out. 
it's difficult to make us make sense of a passage like this. We have eleven tribes of Israel seeming seemingly unconcerned about justice, but they don't seek to find out the whole story. They don't try to find out if the Levite was really culpable for any of any of what happened to his concubine. They jump to what I would suggest is a rash conclusion apart from seeking God. And then they go to Benjamin, try to kill the offenders. And when Benjamin won't bring them forward, a civil war breaks out. And eleven tribes uh, during this time amazingly seek God and His desires before the battle and during the battle and apparently even give credit to God after the battle. So what can we learn from this? There are three things that I think we can learn from Judges chapter 20. Number one, a society that moves away from the law of God will stumble quickly into the pit of anarchy. A society that moves away from the law of God will stumble quickly into the pit of anarchy. The law of God was designed not to be oppressive or a bad thing. It was designed to be a good thing. It was designed to protect Israel from danger. It was designed to be fair for all people so that even the poor people could survive in this kind of society. So that you could have fairness, amazingly, within a community of sinners. That's what the law was designed to do. And yet, whenever you have a people that wants to be free from the law, then you have a society that will quickly fall into self-inflicted trouble. Anarchy means the rule by none. And anarchy may seem appealing to a people who want to be free from the law, free from the oppression of the law. But it's actually the worst form of government that there is, or should I say lack of government. It's the worst form. And if we're honest with ourselves, we are all tempted to be free from laws. The story of Israel is something that helps us to see inside of our own hearts. It's not that Israel is worse than any other people. It's not that Israel is worse than any other people group in the history of humankind. In fact, if, if we were in their sandals, we likely would have acted the same way. And the point is that even a chosen and privileged people like Israel can turn away from God. And we are much like they. God has privileged us in abundant and immeasurable ways. And yet we seek to come out from underneath His rule, His law for us and become our own individual rulers. We want to be the ones who are on the throne. We will make the choices about what's best for us. We don't want people over us. But God knows, and if we, and we know if we think carefully, that the law under which we are, the law of Christ, is actually designed for our good, right? It's actually designed for our protection, for our spiritual prosperity. So understand this, God's demands and desire, uh, God demands and desires that, that He has for your life what is best. God's demands and desires that He has for you are best for you. It may feel oppressive at times that we have to obey people who are over us, but God's demands are always best. And God's demands are our God's laws, God's rule that He's set up over us, whether it be the government or whether it be in our homes or at our jobs or in the church, God's structures that He has set up are best for us. 
and and uh, we would do ourselves well to stay under that protection rather than to try to get out from underneath it. Number two, we are always operating with mixed motives. We are always operating with mixed motives. There seems to be nothing redeemable in the people of Benjamin. Uh, there, there's not a whole lot we can pull from there and say, let's commend them for what they've done. There's not a whole lot we can pull from there. But the 11 tribes of Israel seem to have at least some concern right, for the desire of God. They approach Him three times in order to seek what He wants for them. And yet, even in that, there seems to be some indiscretions at very best and at worst, just flat-out sins. And so when we evaluate ourselves and when we evaluate other people, we have to recognize that we always operate with mixed motives. That, that is, that we sometimes have both a good motivation and a bad motivation at work in our thoughts, our minds, as we're seeking to do something that we intend to do. For example, when I give to God's work, I could be doing it primarily out of obedience to God. And that's a good thing. But I could also be doing it because I don't want people to ask me why are you not? Why have I noticed that you're not giving? Or because I'm hoping that maybe something bad's going to happen to me if I don't give. See how I can, in one act, give to God's work, have both a good motive, maybe even my primary motive, which is to be obedient to God, and yet have secondary, lesser competing motives that are saying, "But but this is also for so that other people can see you, and so that so that bad things won't happen to you." You see. I can have both good and bad motives competing against each other and they, they, all these motives can lead me to one specific action. So we need to keep this in mind when a person sins against us or commits some sinful act. Certainly we don't want to excuse them and say, well, maybe they, had, they meant good by it and so in order for them to get what they thought was best, they, made this, they did this act of sin and so we can excuse them. But we certainly must factor in and recognize that they could have had a good intention in what they were doing. Okay, so, so sin should not be excused anyway. You know, when, when I have these mixed motives and I am in my thoughts sinning in the way that I'm doing this act, that should not be excused. But what I am saying is that we can easily look at a sinful action of a person and then demonize them with everything that they do. So that means that not only did you do that sinful action, but now we look at the whole of their work and say, you don't do anything good. We turn everything that they've done into something evil when in fact even the sinful act that he did might have been done under a a, a um, seemingly good motive. Okay, please... Please understand what I'm what I'm trying to say here. Okay, I'm not trying to excuse sin when done with a good motive. That's never a right thing. But but in order to be fair to people and to ourselves, we need to recognize that we are always operating with mixed motives, much like the people of Israel. They want to please God, but they also want to bring justice, and at the same time, they want to bring a little bit of revenge, a little bit of retaliation without checking the facts fully. And so we need to to, uh, recognize that as well. Number three, even when we are out of control, God is still there. 
Even when we are out of control, God is still there. A group of people that has abandoned the laws of God and are mildly concerned about the desires of God will not be completely abandoned by God. God is still at work behind the scenes to accomplish something great in the history of Israel. And we could take these stories from the nation of Israel and say, let's just get rid of them completely. Let's start over. And yet, one of the great crescendos in Israel's history is about to happen. It's right around the corner. And it is the coronation of King David which would be followed by the establishment of a more permanent house of God, the temple, right? One of the great uh, crescendos of Israel's history when God would come to meet them in a more permanent place. And so while we might look at a people like Israel, while we might look at someone in our lives who has sinned in some big way, we might just quickly discard them, and yet God says, I have something good in store for them. At this, at this time, there was no king in Israel, but he's coming. And he, particularly David, would bring unprecedented stability to the nation of Israel. But it has to get ugly before it gets pretty. It's like the projects that you do at your home, right? It has to get ugly before it gets pretty. And that's what happens here. We, we have seen plenty of ugliness in the book of Judges. And sadly, we're not done because this story comes to a very uh, terrible ending in chapter 21. And yet, God is at work. God is still there, isn't He? God hasn't abandoned His people. God hasn't said, you know what? I'm done with you. You're, you're moving. I'm going to allow you to move to a place of extinction so that you just are destroyed completely. You destroy yourselves because of your pursuit of sin. Instead, He says, no, I have promised your fathers, and effectively promised you that through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed and I am not giving up on you now. Praise God that He continues to pursue us even when we, uh, with our mixed motives often, pursue after sin, turn away from God, and yet God still has something in store for us. And certainly that doesn't excuse what we have done and that doesn't mean that we don't need to repent. And that's certainly what's going to have to happen for the people of Israel. They're going to have to repent in order for God to, uh, to use them in great ways that, that He will. And ultimately, that repentance comes through their descendant, Jesus Christ, who is the Savior, who is our Savior, whom we look to for salvation. And uh, we can praise God that He is still there. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for Your mercy in salvation and that You continually, after You have brought us out from the, the slavery that we, that we were under to sin, that You brought us to a place where we, could, we no longer had to say yes to sin, no longer had to say yes to the world and to Satan. But Lord, amazingly, we are prone to wander and we are even drawn to sin and sometimes... Admittedly, we enjoy it. And yet, You still pursue us like a loving father or a loving spouse. You, you never give up on us. And so we pray that You would pursue us all the way till the end. That You would finish the work that You have started in us. And Lord, please forgive us for turning away from You. Forgive us as a church. Forgive us as individuals. Help us to acknowledge our 
our sin and unrighteousness and our need for constant cleansing. Lord, but we recognize we don't need constant salvation or we don't need to be constantly regenerated. We are regenerated one time. We don't need our whole body clean as Jesus told to Peter. We just need our feet washed. And so that's what we come to You acknowledging our sin and ask for You to cleanse us. And Lord, we want to see Your name magnified through us. And we love to see You magnified through our obedience. Not so that we can take the credit for it, for it, but so that we could look back and say, Lord, how could You possibly use someone as vile as we? How could You use people as vile as we? We pray for uh, Your grace to, to be able to do that. Lord, we long to see Your church full of all the chosen race and so that we as a, a people could be lifting up our voice in praise to to You who is worthy of all of our praise. May we serve You with our lives and with our lips, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.